So guys, welcome to my little set of live interviews and podcasts. For those who don't know um, how this came about is that right now, about 100 people, uh, parkour practitioners from all over the world were meant to be landing here in Scotland uh, to begin the second ever European Art of Retreat, which was going to be this amazing thing where you come and you meet experts and you discuss all things parkour. Unfortunately, due to the global pandemic, you may have noticed we can't do that anymore. So I came up with this great idea where I would interview um, various people who are meant to be coming to the event uh, about things that I found interesting and let you all watch because that seems like a good use of my time right now. Uh, so today I'm with uh, Chris Grant. Chris is from the first wave of UK parkour practitioners inspired by Jump London way back in 2004. He's been fundamental in the growth of parkour in Scotland and a champion of using parkour as a tool for social change and community improvement. His work has included running Glasgow Parkour Coaching from 2008 to 15, supporting the early developments of ADAPT qualifications, working closely with Parkour Generations, Parkour for Schools, the Jump Project in the Caribbean, and founding Groups of Movement, a national parkour event and organisation that ran for seven years. Uh, now focused on a full-time career in youth work and youth mental health, Chris is keen to bring his insights from that sector back to the parkour community and inspire and influence parkour leaders to help create strong, resilient, and caring young people. And to top it off, he's been my friend for around about 16 years now, which, oh. whew, it's quite a I've while. Near, I've nearly known you longer than I've not known you. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you probably have, because you're a few years younger than I'm, me, right? I'm, I'm 31. I'm 31. You've known me more I, than half my life so at this stage. You've known me more than half of your life, but I haven't, because I'm older. <laughs> It'll be another few years before I get that accolade. All right, Chris, uh, one of the things I've been doing in these interviews is getting some early days perspectives from the practitioners, and I know you're very excited. So do you <laughs> want to start by showing me some of the big memories from the early days of parkour in Scotland? Yeah, so uh, I got this question in advance, and like there are some wee stories I can kind of jump into as well that I thought were quite fun. But um, like I've, I think particularly having Zeno around, Zeno Watson, big shout out. There's like there's so many photos from some of the kind of original events or some of the original training. So I did a very quick dig and put a kind of small. I uh, just for your knowledge, Mick is together. watching us right now. Oh, Mick is gonna love this. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna share. I'm gonna just share this. I'm not gonna spend too much time talking about them, but for the people that it's a sort of in the know presentation. I don't know how exciting it'll be for people that aren't. We're gonna come back to that. But uh, there's just some really good baby faces. So going back. So there's, from the left, Will Tomlinson, who's from Manchester, not really training too much, but he's still around. Keith Lee kind of just looks the same. That's worrying, really. <laughs> he just always looks the same. Scott Houston in the middle, and then Alex Pownall, who we can, we keep calling him the baby kid, but he's not. So that was uh, Rendezvous 2000, and either eight or nine, I think it was the fourth one. Um, it was a big memory for me because Glasgow Parkour had, not started that long and Scott and Mick and I and a couple other people were invited down to coach um, a little bit off the cuff and it was quite scary but it was just ace it was a real brilliant moment and that was really when Rendezvous was in that sort of early heyday and that big first wave of like massive parkour events and people traveling and yeah I'm not going to talk about every photo because we'll be here forever there's you Roots Movement 3 right. that's the, the first one I talked at yeah, so ROM 1, I was trying to work this out, right? Roots of Movement 1 was 2010. So it goes, so you take one away. So Roots of Movement 3 was 2012. Um, that was really good, but I found that at you. You've got a bit of stubble there. 
Um, uh, there's young Tim Pierce as well. If anyone watched David Drill Balance, Tim is incredibly hairy now compared to there. <laughs> um, hopefully he'll come back and see this. A um, couple of trips down to uh, London. Boxall Rolls. R.I.P. Um, Mick and Omar Jan and Zeno. Um, this is going back even a wee bit further. I think this is the first time Blaine came to visit. Uh, Pete McKee looking especially young there. I've worked very hard on my fringe at those times. I kind of missed that. So that was the merchants. Nina's sort of hiding. And then what I did think was funny was what some of like the original press looked like as well. So this is like <laughs> 2000, even in times, Glasgow, 2000 and f- probably five, 2004, five. Um, just really funny. Like um, that was the Glasgow University cool magazine and the dates was... up there. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? Like, and and what was funny about that at the time was how uh, we were so protective and defensive over the representation of it, which is kind of a good thing. But it was also a bit like it, it, it was so new, and you were so keen for it to be yours that you would pick it. You'd read that article and just be so grumpy if there was one word that didn't work. And it's just funny that it doesn't matter, you know, that the, the progression was there. I put this in because it's like old Tressur fashion. So yep. like baggy skater jeans because nobody would wear joggers. I get a lot of flack for this in Inver Parkour community yeah. these days. They they look at the old videos and they're like, Hedge, you're in jeans. And I'm it's like, because yeah, like it, it was yeah. 2005. And like, I think a lot of the people, certainly for me, a lot of the people that were in it were not, they, they had that kind of... Um, contrarian view about sport and like you know you weren't a sports person you didn't wear joggers what you were a skater or like you know it had a bit of that about it for a while and then it obviously just didn't work and then there's the legendary Merrells which were like the first ever shoe that was pushed for parkour and gave me shin splints to no end <laughs> um pulled this out for some more young faces and oh I did find this so don't answer this hedge but I'm hoping that there's people on here who are old school enough to recognize that color on that wall because that's in <laughs> london ah it's just occurred to you hasn't it <laughs> so if you've been if you've been training long enough to remember when the imax walls were orange then you're definitely old school um but i thought that photo was funny because it just it also just reminds me of how uh, in those IMAX. early days yeah, IMAX London. But IMAX the... is the tricking spot, though. It's like it's yeah. most famous for a lot yeah. of its mad flips now. Yeah, totally. Um, but also just remembering like how, like that debate is still around, but it's not loaded in the same way. And also like the progression of the discipline is just unbelievable. And like you, it, those distinctions are so blurred now. Whereas I think like when we started, there was quite a big distinction between. The, the ways that people moved and it's kind of nice that it's moved on from that. I know people still like to do a bit of it, but you, I remember being up till three in the mm. morning, arguing with people on parkour.net and then just wondering what I was doing with my life. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. And then I put this in, which is to remind me of two things. So um, when anybody asks me about memories of parkour, Brian, big Brian O, dearly departed, is always in my head because he's just such a character. Uh, this was between Christmas and New Year, uh, in London, I don't remember the year, but it was quite far back. That's Chris Keithley in the foreground, um, and then Ali Shelton climbing out the window. Um, and I think it was Brian and maybe Brian and someone else's apartment, and we just had a big party, and everybody went out on the roof. Um, but the story that reminded me about, which was the one I wanted to tell, was like Hedge. You'll remember, although I don't know how often you did it, the sort of um, 
just going to stop this year now. The saga of getting the Megabus up and down to London. So, like, and, and actually, although it's not really a Scotland memory, like, everybody in Scotland had related to this. Like, if you wanted to go to London, you could do it for £2 if you were willing to experience the torture of the bus. You did um, it so often. Oh, I, I, there was points where I would do it every weekend. Um, and partly because it was just fun and I didn't really mind. Like, but um, it was so cheap. And you could book it in advance and then just sit on the tickets. Um, but what one of the things that I remember really strongly was that we were coming down for a rendezvous one year. We all went down, except for Mick. Mick had to work the first night or something. So on this Friday night at like 11 o'clock at night, I text Mick just to say, right, are you on your way down, etc. And this is like, it's probably like 2009-10. So you're not taking photos with your phone yet. And Mick texts me being like, I'm on the Megabus and there's beds. Right, and I was like, no, there's, no, there's not, Mick. Ha ha. Right, thinking that's that's a wind up. I'm really trying not to swear, um, and and just like you know, and by this point, a lot of the PKG or the London guys and the Edinburgh guys had all done that mega bus, right? And it was such a point of contention that like you just survived it. And the first day was always a total write off when you got to London or Glasgow or Edinburgh from the other end. And so Mick was like, no, I'm on. I, I got put in the queue for a separate bus it was about 20 people and there's beds and it's like a full bed and there's like a mega bus bottle of water and a mega bus croissant and like uh mega bus wi-fi but at this point your phone didn't really take data so it was like yeah and um and i just remember being like absolute nonsense and then and even when he got the next day, I was like, yeah, very good, Mike. Ha. And he had this wee bottle of water with a Megabus guy on it. And I just thought, no way. Right. So then about a week later, I was going back down to London again. And the Mega Sleeper appeared on the website. Right. Nice. And I was like, no way. And so there was this year where it was only about a year where you could get a Megabus. If you got it far enough in advance, it was a pound. And it was like a tour bus. And it was amazing. It like totally revolutionized that journey, right? And so I spent a year telling Brian about it. And it just it was just a big part of this really funny narrative with the Megabus. And then eventually, Brian kept trying to book it, but it was like 40 pounds. And it was just, it just didn't bother. It just didn't bother coming. Eventually he got it and he was so excited about it. And we'd built up to it for a year. But of course... He was a big guy, so <laughs> he, he he got on the sleeper bus, which we'd all been like talking about how you get eight hours of, it's like lying in a cloud, going up the motorway <laughs> to Glasgow, and he didn't fit, and he had to sleep with his legs out, and people kept tripping over him, and like, <laughs> it was just a total disaster. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I think the travelling thing, even if it's just to Edinburgh to see you or whatever, it's, it was such a big part of that early, I mean, it still is now, but it's different, I think, because the communities are so big in every city now that there's there's less as a different need for that, right? You know, I think even yeah. between between Glasgow and Edinburgh when we started, it was like you and me and one or two other sort of people on the fringes of that. And yeah, yeah there was in like in two thousand four or five, there were maybe thirty people training in Scotland. Yeah, uh, who? and we can have thirty people at a jam. Yeah, on a Wednesday night now. Yeah, totally. Um, um, but yeah, they're all they're all good memories. It's just it is bizarre. I'm sure you're the same as me to have those moments where you kind of go like, that that was 16 years ago. Yeah. And like, there's a um, I don't know if you listened to the recent Motus podcast with Phil Doyle, but um, hearing some of the young guys from Motus kind of react to some of the old stories about parkour and kind of thinking 
there's a whole generation of like absolutely amazing practitioners who just don't have any idea about that. And I'm yeah. not, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but like the, you know, the bar, the bar is constantly moved up. Right. And like, I remember there was a, like a, like two rail, rails at like a generic distance apart, like a meter and a half. Um, and remembering being out with Mike, who was the original guy and Mike saying, I wonder if anybody will ever be able to like monkey over the first rail and land with their feet on the second rail. So like, like a level called precision, but it was like a meter. But nobody done that. So you just had no, there was no dial or there was no like metric to set against. And yeah. it's bizarre to think that like people are doing that in a week. Yeah. You know, th those it's really interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's, there's two really interesting things there. Uh, the first is, for me, the joy of those early days is that they're ours. Yeah. There's something so wonderful about yeah. getting to live a life where we got to do something. Like the Parkour is now at an age where like, it's gotten far enough that it's no longer at the beginning anymore. Yeah. We got to be there yeah. and it was weird and stupid sometimes and inefficient and wonderful, but it was ours. And yeah. that's what, I mean, that's what made me keep coming back to it. Um, and I suppose it's kind of what, it's something that I'm, I try and keep in mind, like just the wonder of being able to go your own way and create your own thing. And to, obviously there were inspirations and founders and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, it was us meeting up on dark Scottish streets, trying to figure out what on earth we were doing and why. Yeah. And it spawned something wonderful. Yeah. And, um, and it's funny to like, to be at, like, it's, it'd be easy for us to both come across as old guys being like, it was better then. It's not about that, right? It's a different experience. Mm. But it, it's funny to get to a stage now where you're kind of that, like, that you're not part of the wave, right? Or, or at least you have a different role in the sort of wave of popularity that's going on now. It's quite a funny place to be. Like, you, you know, the, the sort of, I guess, like the, the innovation now is coming from different generations. And it's, it's an interesting thing to look at from the outside. You know, like, not not from an egotistical point of view, but be, being first is, has a totally different meaning from what it did when we started. And and mm -hmm. the, the rate and the way that it progresses is just amazing now. It's changed so much. It's of the awesome. movement, yeah. And like that idea, I think, of like how different the movement is in some areas and how yep. innovation happens. But also just the fact that now it's we're getting to that point where it's grown up and people are beginning to take it in very different directions. We see a lot yeah. of the stuff that the, the coaching organizations are doing and the way they're taking these ideas and they're really trying to fit in like how parkour affects the way you live and how it's and really begin to refine those ideas that we've always known, which is it's not a sport. But we were actually doing that now in ways that are actually really interesting because we had 10, 15 years to get good at those things. Yeah. I really, I really um, like at the moment that there's like a and it's it's kind of persisted the whole time. There's still a total. Um, there's a lot of gravitas about being able to stick a movement and be precise and like that. But that's persisted, right? So I remember like when people started doing a lot of acrobatics originally. That was one of the big bugbears. That was our ammunition to be like, well, there's no point in doing a flip to a wall because you're not going to stick it. It's not precise. And you know, I I think I held that opinion with a bit of ignorance. But it was there and it's cool to see that like you know like guys like the motus projects and storer and you know all these these guys who are the stuff they're doing acrobatically is utterly phenomenal but there's still so much credibility to taking your time over that and and 
having the credibility of doing it properly. And it's cool that some of those principles have persisted, even if some of us old guys occasionally are, are feel a little bit uh, behind the times. <laughs> yeah, it, it's fun to, it's also from my perspective, working in the industry, it's fun to see someone do something and for me to be able to go, hey, I want to do that. Yeah. Like um, one that's been a, a big one for me the last year or so is um, level lashy precisions, being able to lashy onto something, like being able to la like, you know, concrete for fun, but being able to swing on a bar here and land on a bar here is, yeah. it's so hard and it's so wonderful. And to be able to like, look at someone who is like five, 10 years younger than me who can do it and go, oh man, I want to do that. It, it's for me, it's wonderful. And I'm really, I love the innovation of movement. But I think I'm also I love also quite comfortably at a stage these days where I, I get to pick and choose. So I don't have the same needs to like you you can't possibly be able to do everything that everyone's doing. Everyone is specializing in fracturing. Here comes the dog. And that's the nice. Oh fresh for himself. It. It's just a <laughs> uh, I'm gonna move us on to what we're actually okay. planning to talk about here because that feels like uh, Professor Hart is telling us what to do. Um so you um and one of the really cool things uh, kind of maybe to tie this into what we've been talking about is that people have gone on to become experts in things and one of the really cool things about this podcast is i get to sit here and i get to talk to experts about things and for you that's very much uh, now turning into youth work so yeah. do you want to give us an, an overview of what youth work is and also maybe set some bounds on it because probably the best way to visualize youth work in some ways is also what it isn't yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. And that's actually kind of what I've got in my notes. So I'm going to have a quick glance at my notes and then try and get away from them because it's, um, I'm getting old and senile. I'm worried about forgetting stuff. Um, so I think the first thing is that youth work, is quite, youth work can be quite hard to define. So a lot of, a lot of what I do when I do like basic youth work training with people or exercises is to get them to try and define it. Um, it's dead important to say that like, um, Youth work's only one approach, right? There's not, it's not a way of working that has to be done and you can also use other ways to work with people. Um, but what's kind of fundamental about it is, is, like you said, is sort of what it isn't. So youth work stands aside from formal education with young people. Um, it's kind of defined by that in a lot of ways. Um, and it tends to be that youth work is, is looking at uh, supporting young people with, um, developing sort of skills and preparing them for challenges that they might come across which aren't founded in a specific subject right so you're not building their literacy or their numeracy you might but that's not part of it but you're doing things like helping young people to think about how they might tackle problems that they have um, and really importantly also get them to contextualize their place in the world um, and that's in terms of like citizenship who they think they are um, sort of coming to terms with their own identity and um, all of these sort of soft skills which research has shown is kind of more important for becoming a good employee and a good citizen in a lot of ways over the top of things like literacy and numeracy obviously there's exclu exclusions to that you know if you're an engineer you need to have certain levels of um mathematics or whatever but you know good employees are the ones that can handle conflict think about themselves manage relationships um put themselves in the right context in the right situations so youth work's really about that and also anybody listening to this will be going yeah that's what we do as parkour coaches mm -hmm. right you know and and my my kind of big headline i guess thinking about this and and 
for myself, but also in terms of the art of retreat is like, particularly in the coaching organizations, we already do it. The fundamental principles are already kind of followed um, in terms of the way that parkour people teach and what young people get out of it. So um, a lot of defining it is just about being able to describe it in that way. So I guess the last and kind of crucial bit to that is the sort of three big principles that are founded in youth work. Um, I'm not going to get into the history of how they were all founded, but it's about 120 years old. The practice, the people like the Scouts um, and the YMCA are sort of at the beginning of it, but it's a bit more complex than that. Um, but there's three big principles. So the first one is that any work that you do starts from where young people are. So what that means is might mean where they are geographically, but also it can mean where they are in terms of their ages and stages of development, how they see themselves, how they're perceived, um, where they are in terms of how they feel emotionally about taking part in an activity, where they are physically. Um, you know, that where they are thing is quite a big principle. The second one is that they have to, there has to be choice to participate. Um, that's the big distinction really between youth work and formal education. Is that and again like there's semantics and you could you could look at the outliers but basically you have to go to school um mm -hmm. you know and and one of the principles of youth work is to make sure that you create an environment where young people choose to participate um you could pour over that for hours as well yeah um, like there's there's ways we could take that and discuss yeah, that yeah. but as a general principle let's just yeah. leave it alone for now and then the, the third one and it's sort of the crucial one and again this can be quite a big distinction from i guess from more formal education is that um, youth work sees the young person uh, or the young people and the leaders as partners in the learning journey. So that sort of old, not old, that sort of standard pedagogy of I am your teacher and I impart knowledge and you listen and you take it in is not really there. It's much more yeah. of a mentorship or what we would say a coaching role. Um, and even more so within youth work, you know, a starting point a lot of the time is about saying to young people, how would you like to learn this? Or what would you like to learn, first of all? And then what's going to work for you? So that a young person feels that they're really leading their journey. And there's loads of evidence in lots of different sectors that shows that like people with agency who feel like they've got control over situations are much more likely to engage with it and learn better. Mm -hmm. you know, and within, just if they have... Yeah, within, within the context you're describing, I can yeah. imagine that being very true. You're really... You're doing a, the the philosophies underpinning that really come back to I don't know how much you know about this, but like neo-Marxist understandings yeah. of education yeah. and yeah. Um, a lot of the, the therapy work that's gone into how to actualize human beings instead of yeah. the more formal educational roles, which have different approaches for various reasons that we can get into. But, but yeah, let's not and bother. I, and I think a lot of that, a lot of those three principles emerges in parkour as a practice and as a coach, right? And obviously people, people will go back to that a second and, and dig into it a wee bit. People use them in different ways, right? But generally speaking, the fact that we call ourselves coaches rather than teachers, I think already says something about the approach. It's, it's very much a relationship between you and the students. That's not to say there's not moments where you're a teacher and they're a class, but- That's actually it's, really interesting because I describe myself as a teacher. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, but again, that's the interesting thing is there are lots of styles and they all intertwine, right? It's not really about being one or the other. Um, and I think there is a difference between coaching and teaching from a sort of academic perspective. But I think what I know from working with you that what you do is a mix of both, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is that people can do that to different degrees and different levels, depending on their own coaching styles, what they learn, but also based on the needs of the young people and the organizations that you're doing it for. Like if most of your work 
for example, is coaching in schools, then to some extent, you're walking into an environment and a structure that young people already understand as a teaching environment. They might not mm -hmm. define it like that, but they know that, right? And what you probably do is you use some of those structures to get your class working, but you also bend those rules a wee bit and you maybe got a slightly less formal relationship with young people than teachers do. They maybe get more of a say in how they work. Like all of those principles are in there. And I think- I think it's, dead, sorry if I can, it's definitely it. true when you begin working with teenagers. Yeah. I think there's a degree to which this is probably as you get younger and younger, this yeah. fades away a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, when working with yeah, children 12 plus as a general rule, I can see exactly where you're coming from. Yeah. And I think generally Parker is a practice, you know, like um, starting from where you are, like there is Parker is very democratic in the sense that um, we there's a healthy respect for people's effort rather than their level. Right. And so when someone starts parkour, generally speaking, people are pretty supportive of where they are in that journey and they help them from that point. Right. You know, um, people choosing to participate, you know, this, we'll say to people all the time with parkour, you know, you can kind of do it at your own level and you can do it how you like. You, you're not walking into a set structure of training. Right. Again, there's nuance to that. But generally speaking, what you're trying to do is create parkour creates a space for you to learn how you would choose to learn. And then that third thing about the, the sort of partner journey between the learner, that's what jams are. It's mm -hmm. about that constant feedback loop of somebody going, what do you think about this? And you going, that's a good idea. Why don't you try it? Or maybe this. So like those principles are just kind of built into the sport, I think, in the way people learn. Um, and so it just marries up really well if you decide to take it in that direction. So one of the things that's sort of interesting about youth work is, um, and something that's very true of, specifically your story when it comes to working with young people your coaching work and your latest work is that you find yourself uh, in contact with an awful lot of young people with additional support needs or who are at risk or who are very from very deprived backgrounds um one of them probably the best salient takeaways we can give to people watching this podcast is well what are the tips and tricks how do you why would you want to work with people who are so difficult essentially right so i think the there's a few things um difficult is relative right so i think there's a there, there is there is a long conversation we could have there about defining what we mean by difficult right mm -hmm. which we're not going to dive into and, and nobody's wrong in that conversation because i guess what you mean potentially sort of roughly in the context of difficult there is it, it's it's unlikely that you would be able to set up really quickly a kind of standard class structure there's a level of engagement that has to happen first, right? Yeah. That And that is a challenge. Um, so I think there's a few things around that. It goes back to that first principle, though, of starting where young people are. So you need to be, and you need to, be able to walk into a room with young people and, and genuinely and authentically start from where they are. So it, we've all had this experience as coaches where you walk into a room with an idea of your class structure and the behaviour is not what you expect, whether that's positive or negative. Mm -hmm. And you... Either you fall to pieces because you've got a structure that doesn't work. And if you're not an experienced coach, that's really stressful. Or you then take a step back and you look at what's going on in terms of how your students are and you start from there, right? So it's, it's keeping that principle. And I think what's really important as well is no one recognize your privilege and that you are a guest in their space. Mm. Right? It's really interesting you bring it up that way because um, yeah. that idea of, uh, starting from where they are 
makes so much sense. But you see it again and again when working with uh, inexperienced coaches. They come in, they have a set class one, they want to teach conferees. If they haven't got, if the kids don't learn conferees, they feel like they failed. Yeah. And it's it's this, for the, for, if we can flip aside, for the mental health of the coaches, it's really bad. Yeah. Because actually what you should be doing is saying, hey, what do I have here and how can I best help this group? Yeah. Um, something, something that, something that um, Adam is particularly great at hammering into coaches is that idea of sometimes young people just need to run around and scream and play for yeah. an hour because yeah. they might not have had 100%. that today. And actually, you can do so much good for them by giving them less this day. So it's yeah. really cool that you're kind of seeing that same thing from another angle. And I think, like, so from a youth work perspective, that start from where young people are also doesn't just happen in the room, it happens first right? Do your research. Understand the, the group of young people that you're going to work with as best you can in advance. Ask the people that already work with them what they want. Ask them why there's a demand for parkour or whatever your project is in their area. Where do they think that need is coming from? So that you can go in with a bit of preparation in that. Um, and the second point that I was kind of coming to there was just about yeah, recognizing your privilege and that you're a guest in their space. You know, like when I go to Jamaica to work with um, young people who are facing death and murder on a daily basis, I don't have a relationship with that lifestyle. And by pretending to have a relationship with that lifestyle, young people spot um, a lack of authenticity immediately, right? <laughs> So you need to be able to find your place as a guest in that. And I think the way to do that, not just with young people, with anybody, is to make sure that you are, you're inquisitive and that you're responsive to their needs by asking. You know, so like, don't get me wrong, I can go into a group that I don't know and teach them some parkour movements, but, but at the same time, if you're, so in Jamaica, we drove up in a blacked out British Council car with a British flag on a wee bit at the front of the car, past people with like machine guns right so you like you could not be more out of place right and i'm i'm being a bit facetious and using a bit of an extreme example but that idea no, that I've, you need i you i know that know experience you, very yeah, well you need to know that you're potentially going into an environment where you are the guest you are and you need to behave like a guest and build genuine leadership and authority out of trust right and a bit like what you were saying about adam with the guys running around like you need to be the one making concessions at the beginning before you're going to get a lot back, right? So if you go in, you know, I guess if I was working with a group of quite challenging young people, the first session would sort of be looking at those principles with them in a lot of ways. So I'd sit down and go, all right, guys, I'm here to teach you parkour. Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to see some moves? Do you want to, do you want to just get cracked into the work? Like, I like doing push-ups. Do you want to do that? What do you think it is? Like, where would you like to start? And balance that out against what you need to achieve. Right. You know, and I think there's really subtle ways that we do that. Like Adam's saying, where you kind of read the room and go, you know what, like 20 minutes with the crash mats today is going to be really productive. But there's also preparation in that as well. And I think that's that's the big answer. But there's no doubt that having those two or three principles and constantly going back to them, the way that anyone does with any good practice is, is super important. You know, and there's a level of sort of try do review that just gets refined as you go. Cool. Um, it's sort of interesting because it, it really pulls out and sets aside the the very different authoritative structure that you see when you move in school environments. You look at teaching and you look at skill acquisition and you look at all these principles of how to take someone and impart very specific things to them. But I guess it has a different purpose. So 
maybe the next, my next question is, so what are your outcomes in those situations? What are you trying to achieve? So, I mean, I guess, like as a parkour practitioner, there's probably some outcomes movement-wise that you'd like to get to, right? And so, like you're saying, in some ways, they're sort of incidental, right? Like if you, you want everybody to be able to move, broad, broad general terms here, you want everybody to be able to move safely after a while, get, get their grips to some of the principles and, and be able to train by themselves, right? I think we all want that. Um, but, you know, I think, again, it comes back to that thing about starting from where young people are and speaking to the whoever your sort of client or your partner in that is to understand what their outcomes are. So what you're probably looking at is trying to get young people to think about um, how they discipline themselves, how they learn from mistakes, um, what is their place in the group of young people that they socialize with, um, how, do they, how do they navigate relationships that are foreign to them, like a Scottish guy who's quite privileged coming into Jamaica and trying not to get shot, right? You know, like how, how because they need to, that's a really important skill, right? Like see the, see the young people I've worked with in the Caribbean, some of them have been to Glasgow now. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's like monumental in their journey as a person. And again, I think the reason it works so well with parkour is those things already happen. It's just about what you lean on, right? You know, and, and you know, we know from doing things like ADAPT that there are some of the lessons that you get set in the test are not about teaching a movement skill, they're about teaching a sort of quality, like yeah. confidence, speed, you know. So it's about using what we know as parkour practitioners as a tool to sort of point young people in the direction of that. So things like your, like, you know, the games you can play where everyone has to try and get on a bollard. That's a particular popular one in Edinburgh, right? Think, really take your time to think about all the work that's going on in there if you step back. So somebody has to take responsibility, right? Everybody else has to manage their egos and, and understand when it's time to step forward and lead and when it's time to let somebody else do that. People have to find their place in the group. Then you have to be able to touch each other. That's quite a big deal for teenagers. Mm -hmm. you have to, so you have to understand the, you have to understand physical boundaries. You're learning about what boundaries are appropriate there. You understand about communication. You also might be understanding about whether it's appropriate in some situations to like try stuff and get it wrong or look at who the planners are in the group, right? So you're also mm -hmm. looking at group dynamics in terms of like, so like me, I'm an activist. I like to just try stuff and get it wrong quite happy mm -hmm. with that right some people are more into sort of sitting back and being theorists some people like to observe what everybody else does and then make suggestions and all of that is in those exercises really clearly but it works with young people because those are quite high level concepts if you sit down and explain them but if you have a visceral experience that involves all those concepts then you can reflect on them Mm. you know and I think so it's just about us directing that you know you're not it's almost like I, I'm not adding anything new to what we do it's just about how you describe it and how you direct it I think I think you're, you're doing two things that maybe you so the one thing that I think is really important to bring up at this stage is the principle of uh scaffolding concepts yeah. so um one of the really interesting things you find when you work with young people a lot of the time and you're trying to impart lessons to them is that they need to have some scaffolding to pin an idea to. Like um, you can't teach multiplication until they have a grasp of what a number yeah. is. Uh, so you need to build ideas on ideas. And a lot of what you're talking about to me feels like building social ideas on social ideas in a similar format. So yeah. like, 
Um, and when I think about the way we approach things and do things, I think so much of what we as coaches, and using that definition very particularly yeah. there, are doing is we're scaffolding on social concepts in a manner that really allows people to understand how society works. I mean, I think actually one of the interesting things about that personally is that when I was a young guy, I didn't know how any of that worked. I was particularly, I had really bad social skills and I had to learn them a bit slower than other people. And a lot of the parkour practice I did really helped me scaffold those ideas on top of each other yeah. until I became a bearable human being. We're working on good, but we're at bearable. So, uh, Yeah, I would uh, um, concur. <laughs> So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that and like speak to those yeah. things because that idea is so fundamental to how we yeah. educate, but we don't necessarily apply it to social skills in the same way. Yeah. We sort of we have that fixed mindset where we say, well, this person's bad with people, this person's good with people. Yeah. Instead of that more open idea, which is, hey, let's start with them where they are and let's just try and move them forward one yeah. step. And and don't get me wrong, like we're we are we're living in an idealist conversation, right? There are, there are young people who are incredibly difficult to work with, right? So there's a big, I, I'm always bowled over in, in the youth work sector and, and in the mental health sector about the, the, the level of empathy and patience that people that I work with and colleagues can demonstrate towards young people is just unbelievable because you just, you have to keep going back to those principles, you know, it, it, all behavior is communication, right? Yeah. Very, very, I was about very, to say. yeah. Very, very little behavior comes from a genuine malicious place. There's not very many people in the world that are actually bad, right? And so it takes a lot of patience and a lot of practice to be able to um, sort of depersonalize some of the things that might happen as a coach for you. You know, if people, if you've just got somebody that you is just not cooperating with you, you know. A lot of the time that becomes about them having the problem rather than you thinking maybe my approach doesn't work. And actually, if you're the responsible person in the room, then, you know, the bulk of the responsibility lies on you to find a way to engage that person. And again, like there's there's levels to that and depending on the situation, you may need support. But I think that having that level of patience and being able to keep checking in with like, well, where is that young person? Like, why, why do they need to run around on the crash mats for an hour? Right, because they've got you know, huge social challenges going on outside their lives that we can't fathom. Well, if that's the case, it's not going to help if I tell them off and it's not going to, and it's not going to land. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think just keeping that in mind is a lot of work, but it's so valuable. And it, it's a principle that works in every conversation forever as well. You know, you, any conversation with anyone, if you're, if you practice the ability to be able to try and put any notions of what you think the person's behavior is about to the side and really listen and listen doesn't just mean listening like this it means listening to the situation it's so valuable you know and I think One that's of, a great a great thing about parkour and traveling is that you naturally do that you have to you get put in a position where you're the cultural abnormality in the room and you have to sit back and go right what what do, how do people behave you know it's a weird one um one of the one of my favorite uh, quotes as an educator, um, it, it mostly revolves around working with children with additional support needs, uh, but applies beautifully here, which is all behavior is the correct behavior for that child in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's really really cool to be able to, and it may, it's it's this really difficult thing that a lot of um, a lot of inexperienced coaches have, where they they look at the behavior of a child. And their immediate reaction is to go, well, 
if I was that child and I was yeah. in that situation, I reacted like that, it would be because I was trying to piss off the teacher or it would be because I couldn't be bothered listening. And, that's, yeah. and then they assume that about the child. And when you remove that, you actually have to remove a layer of empathy there and go quite like openly, compassionately, why, like, why is this child behaving like this way in this moment? Don't assume anything. Kind of just go in. Um, ears open is such a terrible term, but yeah, uh, just like with few preconceptions and see what happens. Yeah, and, and again, um, I think just I'm going to cut in now just because you're at a great point for this. I think that also relates to that other principle of youth work of that person being on the learning journey with them, with you. Mm -hmm. Sorry, is that you? If a lot of the time that behaviour is because it's not what they want to do. Right. So and of course, our job is also to get people to do hard stuff. But a lot of understanding how somebody might feel is just by being able to ask them without being confrontational. Yeah. You know, one of the really, you go first. One of the really interesting things you take from that and from all of these ideas that you've pieced together quite nicely is that so much of what you're doing is helping them learn to work in the community and building community around them. Yeah. And I think, is, you know, there's a big difference between why are you doing that? and what can I do to help you get to where I need you to get? Mm -hmm. Which is saying, I'll make a concession if you make a concession and we'll agree on a compromise rather than I'm in charge and you have to do it this way, which for a lot of challenged young people is all that they hear. Mm -hmm. So of course it doesn't land. No. Yeah, and it becomes about learning to find ways to let them... Like, and finding ways to make them want to follow the rules such that they understand that hey when you follow the rules things get better yeah. because one of the one of the failures one of the really failures of a lot of um physical education coaching is uh you know a teacher comes in with the ball he starts the game and if you don't want to play the game um you get this reaction and you're like well actually no like i will take the telling off because being shouted at is better than having to embarrass myself socially in front of this group of people by not yeah. being good at football. So yeah. instead, I'll just purposefully be bad. And so many of those like really negative interactions with physical education that we see can be explained by that child in that moment doesn't want, like has worked out that they would rather get shouted at by the coach or get made in trouble by the coach than take this, the whatever like worse outcome they have. So if you create these spaces, and this is so much about what I want to do, which is you want to create these spaces where people are rewarded for trying and failing and being themselves and playing, yeah. you end up with kids who are rewarded for doing the behaviors you want them to have. Yeah. And if you can create those experiences for them, then they're going to internalize them. And if they internalize them, they're going to live them. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things that I want to pick up on there that are really good that I'm just trying to like stamp here so that I don't get deviate so the first thing i was going to say is there's also a lot that you can do in terms of the way you describe it so like it, i would use the word agreements instead of rules right now don't get me wrong like a game of chess has rules right i get that right but what i mean by that is that what you're doing in that subtle change of the language is saying that everyone is a partner in in, in being part of agreeing those rules potentially, or at least participating in them to make it work, right? And again, like it's different within it, like football has a set of rules, right? Mm -hmm. But there's different levels of participation. And if somebody feels like they have a bit of agency and, and they understand why their contribution to those 
rules or that agreement makes a difference, they are much more likely to engage than, than push up against it, right? So I guess like a really sort of crude example would be that you, most groups of young people that I would work with, you start on day one with a group agreement that comes from them, right? Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we want everybody in the room to, to behave so that we can have a good environment to do the work, right? And so obviously they get to contribute to that. Generally speaking, it's the same sort of stuff, right? But there's a big difference between being asked to come up with those rules and being told those rules, even if the rules are the same, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that's that's something that's worth thinking about is just is just how where is there an opportunity for people to feel involved in agreeing on the structures and the behaviours that you expect, right? That doesn't mean that you don't have a place as the expert to say, well, no, that doesn't work. But again, it's like how do you craft that conversation, right? So if you say we need to make a group agreement. There's three or four things that I would really like to go in there, guys. Um, how do you feel about that? And what else do you want to add to it? It's very different from turning up and saying, this is the rules, right? Yeah. So, and I think that makes a big difference. I mean, even if you look at, I think at the beginning of the ADAPT course, they do that, right? You make a group agreement as a group of parkour coaches that like, you're not gonna, you're gonna be respectful of each other's opinions. Um, you're going to try your best to listen and contribute, you know, like a, any good sort of workshop or facilitation that might involve a lot of debate or discussion, you set it up with those sort of group consensual agreements. And there's levels of that you can do in coaching and working with young people as well. I, de- I, see, I see two sides of that. Um, I've actually been reading a bit of research on this very idea. Um, it's a sliding scale of when it does yeah. and doesn't work. Yeah. Um, there are definitely areas where that sort of, thought process have huge benefit and I think the areas which you're talking about youth work where you are looking to go in with consensual relationships I think it really works very positively but I think there are also times when the counter argument of the more authoritarian approach does have credit but I think we are definitely I just it's not I'm not disagreeing with you so much as saying everything you're saying is definitely true for a quite large subset of what we do um, but it's really interesting to hear these arguments because a lot of these arguments, interestingly, have in the last 20 years been tossed out of educational environments. Um, yeah, and, and the other thing is like those those two ways of working are not mutually exclusive, right? So no. for me, it's, it's almost a caveat I would put with anything that I've said here is it's about flavor, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's lots of good ideas out there. So like what's what's the flavor of each idea that works in a situation? So like if you need to have a structure that's really rigid, there's still... That there's reasons why that works a lot better, right? Yeah. But maybe you'll get better. If I could maybe give a really good example. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you want to introduce a group to swinging, you want to have an authoritarian approach to your teaching because uh, if you look at the risk assessment for it, the risk profile for um, group consensus work, you're going to see such a much higher level of injury. But when once they can swing and you want to take a group to a playground yeah. and you all know they all know the rules, you probably want to work with group consensus because yeah. they've moved from that that novice failure to understand the rules into this position where actually they're going to learn best by exploring and synthesizing and creating. Yeah. And then you're moving into an area where everything you're saying makes an awful lot of sense. And and I guess the, the other bit of that would be that, it, so say, for example, that swing class was session number five, right? Mm-hmm. By that time, you've done a lot of that other work of building relationships with those people so that you've got good buy-in for the authority. By that point, you've built, you know, you've built a level of trust where you are also in a position to impose those rules without disengaging them, right? 
and, and it, you're right, it's just all about like getting that balance. But uh, yeah, like I think the thing is, it's so nuanced. And the point is for people to be able to take those ideas and um, and use them in a way that works for whatever the context is. It's like you were saying about inexperienced coaches getting stuck on their lesson plan. This is That's the same thing, right? When are yeah. the right moments to adopt those different paradigms? Yeah, and they are. It's really interesting to sort of put them against one another right now and kind of go, hey, they, these, these ideas have such value. Um, and obviously, uh, it's really cool to be able to look at it with, the broad view of helping yeah. so many different people in so many different situations yeah. and it's such a huge part of inclusive practice so um, and i think the the sort of final thing i would say about that because we're going to be here forever otherwise yeah um, let's, let's yeah. pivot to mental health soon yeah but what i would say before that is like so from my point of view and what i'd like to contribute is that if if parker practitioners can learn to describe what we've just talked about in a way that's understood by people in the youth work sector, then there's a lot of opportunity to get in and help young people, right? So that almost everything we've talked about there are things that we all relate to in terms of the way that we coach, right? But there's lots of ways to describe them that are understood differently by lots of different groups of people. So the thing that I would kind of champion, and particularly after being at Art of Retreat last year and seeing like um, soul parkour and like the, the, the trust system that uh, Parker one that used with a little dice and all that. I loved all that. That's all youth work practice, right? But it's described in a different way. And so being able to take all those concepts that have evolved out of the way that somebody like Parker one practice, but then describe those using those three principles opens a lot of doors. And so it's, it is that thing of like, how many times do you look at something and think, I, I do that as well, but that's not how I would describe it, right? So. And I think that's a really important thing to think about is if you understand these youth work principles, what you can do is connect what you already do with people in the youth work sector. You know, it's not necessarily, yeah. I'm not necessarily suggesting that people need to start afresh and do it a different way. It's about how you are capable of describing it to the right people. It's about learning what the language is appropriate for the audience in front of you. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like iterative in of itself. So you've kind yeah. of got, when you're working with someone, you go to them and you work in their language. Something yeah. that we've, we've talked about this a number of times now. We have. So if you, and one of the most joyous things about this is if you go to a, a, a rundown beat up estate in Glasgow, you don't walk in with a posh and accent. It's a yeah. very, very bad idea. Yeah. You also don't fake it too much, right? It's like, again, yeah. it's so nuanced, right? Like, yeah. it's really tricky. Yeah. And when you walk into a meeting with youth workers, you have to speak youth worker language. Yeah. You turn around and you go into a meeting with teachers, you've got to teach teachers language. And when you walk in down to the street, you've got to speak like you know how the street works. Yeah. And, and I um, think that the, um, so yeah, so understanding the outcomes that those type of clients, so this is coming from like a coaching perspective now as a business. So for someone like you or, or anyone who's listening that's, that's going out and trying to get more work or work with more people, I think the youth work outcomes around the world are quite similar, right? But in almost every country, it's part of legislation and it's statutory. So it's super easy to look up in your country what the legislation and the youth work policy is for the next three or four years, right? And then to be able to walk into a room with youth workers and demonstrate that you've thought about what they need from the sessions is dead valuable. The reality is, see when you get, whenever you get in the door, you'll probably do what you were going to do anyway. But being able to just, yeah, right, because we're, we're all, you know, generally speaking, Parker coaches are good youth workers because what they teach is a set of principles, right? 
as well as physical skills and everything else. But it is a set of principles. That's what young people are learning. And so that they can train by themselves. There's this kind of joke in the youth work sector that you're constantly trying to do yourself out of a job. Because if you're a good youth worker, your young people don't need you. And, and that's something that we've talked about with parkour, right? Is that, that to some extent, and again, it's not black and white, there is a point where you should be able to walk away as a coach and the people you've trained are totally capable of going on their own journey. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But being able to understand that little bit of legislation, the, the one page of outcomes that comes from your government about what outcomes are expected for young people in your country, it massively validates the practice that we do if you know how to describe that just admin yeah i think um i don't think i fully agree that you should ever really build like as a like coaching in of itself is such a huge broad range of things yeah. setting someone up and then also that social level of helping someone self-correct and understanding that human beings often don't assess their own problems correctly mm -hmm. like and you should the flip side is you should be able to coach someone who's significantly more advanced practitioner than you are if you're a good coach because it's much more about getting to that therapy point where you're helping them reflect and you're helping yeah. bounce ideas off that being said i very much agree with that core principle which is that you are trying to help someone self-actualize and once someone self-actualizes they don't need you anymore although yeah. you are still of value to them that yeah that's that's a good way to put it i think that and you're you know I don't know how many people will be familiar with Maslow and all that stuff about self-actualizing, but generally speaking, it, there's a point where the person doesn't have a lot of unmet needs left, mm -hmm. right? And so hopefully you've been fundamental in them and meeting some of those needs. And I think that's where as a, when you meet with uh, really advanced practitioners that you're coaching, it takes a wee bit of practice to work out what their need is, right? Which, which is why it's harder to teach an advanced person. But once you mm -hmm. work that out, you can present them with stuff that's useful, right? Whereas if it's a brand new practitioner, there is a, a menu of needs that you know will need fulfilled, right? So thinking yeah. about that hierarchy of needs and that you're saying the self-actualization bits at the top, you know, the working with experienced practitioners is about looking just underneath that and figuring out what little holes you've not filled. Yeah, yeah. so let, let's, we, we've been talking for an hour. I don't want to go more than 90 minutes tops. Right. Um, uh, but I do want Heather to sit and have a wee chat with you about uh, mental health work. because that's sure. sort of the other half of what you do. Yeah. And we had a, a really great experience earlier this year where you came, no, last year, where you came and uh, where you came and gave uh, a mental health first aid course to all, all of my coaches. Yeah. Um, and it was a really cool experience. And I think that um, there's something to be said and talked about with regards to being aware of the mental health needs of young people that you're working with without necessarily becoming two-bit psychiatrists. Yeah. So I'd love to get your perspective on what mental health is, um, what, how we should be approaching mental health and how we should be thinking about mental health. And also quite similar to before, what are the limits on what we should be thinking about? Yeah. So I think the first thing is it is quite hard, right? And and I think the so the organisation that I work for in Scotland is Scotland's programme to end mental health stigma and discrimination, right? So what that basically means is like, why are people scared to talk about it? Why is it a loaded subject, right? Um, and I think what that means is that people currently, and I'm being very general here, put far too much limitation on their willingness to 
to just ask people how they are or to do a little bit of delving into what mental health is and what it means. Um, but you're right, the other side of that is that it is a fine line. Somebody that can do first aid and wipe a burn with a cloth is not a doctor, right? You know, and, and that the same applies for mental health. So I guess the broad headlines for me are, you know, mental health is everything about your psychological, emotional, social well-being, and also like the caveat of that is that they're all tied up in your physical needs as well. We know that, right? So like there's a triangle we describe a lot about like your social needs uh, and your physical and your mental health, and they sit together and if one falls in, the other two collapse, right? So like it's, we know that if you go and train for an hour, that there's chemical things that are going on probably as well as a sense of achievement that are good for your mental health. So it's hard to separate them. But what's interesting about that is that they are very separate um, when it comes to a sort of cultural sense of how we talk about it and a clinical sense, which sort of makes, which for good reason. So I think that makes it quite difficult for people to, to be supportive or get a, get a baseline of what they should understand. So um, as you know from doing that mental health first aid course, um, there's loads and loads to learn, but the limitation bit is really important. Um, but the most important thing, I think, is if you have a basic understanding of any subject and a basic level of literacy, it makes you a lot more confident in being able to talk to somebody about it and being able to have a go at tackling something in the right way, right? So if, if I came to you as a mate and went, oh, man, I'm feeling a bit depressed. I've been down for a few weeks, right? As a mate, if you'd never, ever thought about mental health or you were really awkward about those conversations, you might be like, you should go to the doctor. And actually, all I need was like to go and have a beer and like just, you know, shoot the proverbial for a little while, right? And it's really and tricky also, in these days. Yeah, yeah, and that and that also works the other way, right? That if, that I could come to you and say, um, feeling a bit anxious, and you could be like, oh, I know about anxiety. Anxiety is these symptoms, and if you tick all these boxes, you've got anxiety, and you start to diagnose it, right? So that which is kind of what you were talking about, you become a two-bit psychiatrist, right? So I think if people gain that basic level of literacy and they, they have a few guiding principles, which is some of the stuff we talk about on that course, which is about like what you can do really well and not really get wrong is try to listen and validate for people how they feel. It's kind of hard Ask to- Ask twice. Make, Ask twice. And it's kind of hard to make that worse. You're not going to make somebody worse by talking about their mental health with them. All right. Don't get me wrong. Pushing someone who's super anxious to talk about things they don't want to talk about might upset them. But if somebody comes to you, listening to them and validating their feelings is, as a baseline is something that you are very unlikely to make an, a big error on, even if it's just really sorry, man. Like, why don't you tell me about it? I hear you. That sounds really hard. You know, it's not about you fixing it necessarily. And, and I think that's where people are fearful is that as humans, we have an inclination to try and fix problems. So if you hear about something that you don't have a lot of understanding on, it's really difficult to listen because you're kind of going, oh no, what if I have to take responsibility for this or what do I do, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I'm starting to rant now, so I'll shut up. And you did a finger that like you had a question. No, I was gonna say, um, what's really interesting about that, that guiding principle of mental health practice, which is first thing to tr actually try and listen and validate, first of all, incredibly hard to do yeah um, people do not realize how hard that is to do and so you've got it i think for me one of the best ways to break down that stigma just keep, i need to, i keep i say that so often hey listening as someone who's particularly poor at it listening is very hard to do um but the thing is if you go and you read a textbook on negotiation 
the first thing that textbook will tell you um, is the first thing you've got to do is you've got to listen, you've got to validate the other person's opinion. You go and read a book on relationship building. Um, you've got to listen, you've got to validate that person's opinion. You go and you read a book on um, conflict resolution. Do you want to know what the first thing they tell you to do is? Yeah. Listen and validate the other person. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because um, every little bit of research tells us that if you act, actively listen to what another person has to say, then you're probably doing better than most other people when it comes to communicating. It feels weird, but like if you actually sit and think about how, and I don't mean you, I mean human beings, mm. think about the way we communicate, um, what you'll find is you spend most of the time the other person, most of the time that the other person is talking, thinking about what you're going to say to them next. Yeah. If instead, during those periods, you actively kind of wait and try and take in what they're saying, the whole thing is different. And I'm particularly bad at it but it's really interesting to kind of hear it coming out of mental health in the same way and see how important it is for every aspect and just keep getting hit with it yeah and and you're right there's, so there's a couple of things there like it is hard that's the first bit it's funny because like i've uh, i'm qualified as a mental health first aid trainer as as you mentioned i came and delivered the course which was also a great learning experience for me because um you know for me like the i was thinking about it yeah that's good though um for me the facilitation skills and stuff are kind of already there but it's uh, when it's communicated in a medium which involves no movement and no parkour and that's to, uh, that's a learning journey for me that i've been on for years right so it was great to be able to bring that course to a kind of trusted group of people and just see what the impact was and not be afraid of the feedback because everybody knows each other and it kind of left that a bit open plus like you and some other people in your gang you're all quite open about saying what you think and that's dead useful particularly in an environment where we know each other and you know not to take offense to that right so that was really useful um where was i going with that yeah but the that thing about listening like i've done that course a few times now and i've delivered it a few times now and like it's revolutionized my relationships like, even with my wife and like, I feel like I'm being dead sexist towards us here that just guys are shite at listening. But th there's so many times now that somebody's told me something that they're having a bit of grief with, right? That I've immediately went to say, why don't you do this? And then thought, oh, th that's actually not what they need. What they need is to go, you're right, that does sound rubbish. How are you feeling about it? And we all do it, right? But it's also, it comes from a good place. It's because you want to help people fix stuff, right? But I think, and that's where the sort of two-bit psychiatrist part comes in is be good at listening and be knowledgeable about signposting. You know, and learn to ask people questions. Yeah, yeah, and, and have an open level of inquiry that is not about you trying to get to a diagnosis. It's about you trying to listen, right? And obviously in the Scottish Mental Health First Aid course, we're also covering things like suicide where, you know, there is a level of inquiry if you think someone's at risk that, that you need to ask. But more generally speaking in terms of how we care for our colleagues in the workplaces and how we create good environments it's about people feeling listened to and it's really hard and it, right at the very beginning of the podcast I was talking a wee bit about uh, the importance of people having agency and it's sort of that same thing that they feel like they've, they're being heard that their opinion's valid um, it, it can be more important than having a solution for them okay so if i can um let's try and pull some strings together here yeah um what does a company with good mental health practice look like cool um yeah and i think we're kind of getting to that which is nice so i think um 
having parity between sort of mental health and physical health conversations is dead important, right? And what, what I mean by that is that um, nobody's afraid to talk about their broken leg and they're usually quite comfortable about showing their battle scars. And I think if people that are confident enough that can role model a bit of communication about their mental health, whether it's good or bad, that's really valuable in, in workplaces or in good companies is that, and that's not about sharing your dirty laundry, but about being able to say, you know, it's really hard to get up this morning. It's just been a really tough week. That's quite a big deal and it's not a sign of weakness, but it role models behavior that says that you as the director or the colleague in a company is willing to share a wee bit about how you feel. Um, and I think, you know, for people that are a bit more senior in companies, but maybe really for everyday is getting into the practice of being able to take somebody's concerns and feeling seriously, even if you think there's an ulterior motive behind it. And that's really hard. Right. So, you know, we, there's a long discussion that we had about attention seeking and what that means. Right. And the reality is that even in the very, very small number of cases where someone is maybe um, manipulating a situation to make it look like they're more hard done by than they are, there's still an unmet need there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think as good colleagues in a company, it, it's, it's on us, we get a responsibility to really try and listen, even when our own view on the world and our own biases is making us think this is BS or this isn't right, you know, because it's better to be wrong about that and, and help somebody than be right about it and ignore them. I said that the right way around. don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, but I think just, you know, taking, taking all these things seriously, being that person that role models good dialogue and good behaviour, um, it sounds really simple, but simple and easy are not neighbours. Right? I think, um, yeah, I agree. Uh, one of the things you've made me think about here is um, something that we've been working on a lot at Access is an openness of communication about trying to create pathways for these things. So it's not it, like like having that that meta discussion so it's not about um it's not all about just having those conversations but it's having con those conversations about having those conversations yeah so right yeah. now we're spending a lot of time talking about the best the way the best way for us to socially interact more often um and we think that when we go back into teaching we're probably not going to drop zoom entirely we're going to try and have what we're calling 15 minute huddles because we find that long meetings, a lot of the guys don't like them very much because they feel like they're not contributing, but information still needs shared. And we're talking about, like, well, how can we make the people feel valued? How can we make them feel heard in a manner that works for them? And like, just being really open, hey, we're trying to do this because we want you to have good mental health. Yeah. And if you say it enough and you actively think about it enough on that meta level, hopefully it will actually improve their mental health. That's it. And, and it really, although that's difficult, it's not, complex right yeah and and then like i said i guess the second piece of that is just having a bit of a knowledge of signposting or at least having somebody within your company who knows what to do if there's an actual crisis if somebody's really in a bad way you know and, mm -hmm. and really if someone's really in a bad way you just phone 999 and get out of the way right the same way you would if somebody got a a death uh a, like a really bad injury that was going to kill them you just phone the police right or phone an ambulance um, but I think you're right. It's just about keeping those connections. And, and what you're saying is also being really explicit that the purpose of that is that you are, you're actively saying as, as a colleague and as a leader, I want to try and take steps for everybody to feel like their mental health is in a good place. Um, and I guess the other bit of that, which is sort of in there, is considering 
what the reasonable adjustments might be for somebody and trying your best to be open to that. Mm. You know, in the same way that if somebody gets, if a coach gets injured, then very quickly you'll find solutions to make sure that they can do as much of their job as they can. And that will be informed by like the extent of their injury, by how you feel, but also by saying to them, like, I know you've got a broken wrist, but how do you feel about delivering youth classes? Because you won't actually need to move very much. You know, whatever that is, I think being able to take that same approach, if someone comes to you and says, look, I'm, I'm really struggling with uh, depression or I'm finding it really hard to stick to the schedule that I have, that being able to take that as seriously as you would with a physical mm -hmm. injury is, is really great. It can be quite hard to fix. But yeah. I think just being able to take it seriously is really good. I think you, with your organisation, from what I've seen, do do that. You've got a real mix of people in there who seem to be quite open about talking about things and they've all faced different challenges. So, you know. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I wonder, if, I wonder if there's a degree to which because we're open about it, we talk about it more and therefore we see it more. Yeah. Or because we're open about it, people with issues like that gravitate towards and therefore we create a community where people are... So much of Access Parkour is about creating a space where people can make themselves better in whatever way or framework that is a community of self-improvement is full of people who are trying to improve and it's a little bit different from that culture of excellence where like hey you come here and you are wonderful instead it's hey you come here and you face the shit in your life wherever that may be and you but get one of the things, yeah one of the things that's made, that you're making me think about right now um maybe you'll have opinions on this maybe you won't so it's probably a little bit further outside your exact area of expertise is we have this um, this ongoing minority um, where who for whom parkour becomes an escape for their mental health. Yeah. So they know that there's shit in their lives and they know there's things going wrong in their lives. And what happens is they come to parkour and they throw themselves at things, so they don't have to face a lot of those things. Yeah. And then the normal methodologies that I have for for comparing and contrasting parkour to mental health and improving yourself literally has to be rejected. A lot of like what we were talking about earlier because this is their escape and their escape cannot be connected to their life. Yep. How would you see that? Would you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I guess what you're saying is that they are, uh, they've found a physical coping mechanism that's not... Uh, that, that's, that's exclusively physical, if you know what I mean, like that's not about mm -hmm. them coming and talking. So part of that is that just that, you know, that we know that physical exercises alleviates things like symptoms of depression. Um, and I think you're, what I would say is that's okay, that you don't need to be the whole solution. What you can maybe do as a good colleague is just monitor the situation to make sure they're not genuinely at a lot of risk. Right. So if, if Parker is the only coping mechanism they have and you think somebody's at risk of, of harming themselves, then maybe you may, need to be a little bit pushy. But most of the time, that's not the case. Right. You know, people people generally can kind of navigate the world. And, and if they're just there to train, you know, conversations about mental health still need to be consensual. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and you, you it's about you opening the door for people rather than putting them through the door. And so there's just lots of different ways that people interact. And I guess that, you know, in, in our current situation, that's something that, that we are seeing, certainly in my work and across the board. And I feel that a bit as well, is that a lot of our normal positive coping mechanisms that are not actually having a dialogue about mental health are gone. Yeah. Right? You know, uh, one like, of the interesting things about that, sorry to interrupt you here, but I think it's relatively important, is that the, 
the novelty of the madness of the pandemic is now wearing off. Yeah. And though all of those mental health issues are now beginning to resurface and the coping mechanisms are gone. Yeah. Um, so we're in a very interesting place right now. There's a lot I am I'm experiencing and dealing with a lot of people who are suddenly not okay when they were okay two weeks ago. Yeah. Because we're think, at that very interesting stage. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think that like that's uh this thing I was saying earlier about knowing your privilege, right? That's a spectrum, I would think. I would think there was people on day one who felt like that, right? Yeah. So if you imagine someone who's living in poverty with eight people in their house, right, and has, say, an abusive relationship in that household, day one is, is Groundhog Day for them, right? Whereas I think if you're potentially part of a community and some of the people that are attached to whatever your positive coping mechanisms are, are kind of trying to engage with you, then it can take a wee while for it all to sink in, which I kind of think mm-hmm. is what you're saying, right? And also it's becoming clearer for maybe for some people that haven't thought about it as like, this is a long-term thing, right? Mm-hmm. This is whenever the sort of current state of lockdown gets removed, it's no a, a switch that's going to get flipped, right? Yeah. The, the world will not be the same. And I think that being able to come to terms with that is a really good starting point for thinking about what your new coping mechanisms might need to be. But I totally get that's incredibly difficult for people. You know, like I was saying to you just before we got on camera, like I've been going trail running. I bought some rollerblades yesterday. You're going to start blading again. I've not skated for 16 years, but like see at the moment in the morning at 6am for my exercise, the streets are empty. I can cruise around for an hour. Like I would normally I'd go to CrossFit. I'm not doing that. I still have connections with that community, but it, but you know, if you can get yourself in a mindset where you can start thinking about the forwards motion of where you are, coming back to a little parkour analogy about moving forwards, yeah, it, it, being able to accept the fact that this is now a new normal and that there's a long-term change in behaviour globally is is a big deal for people. And I think you're right. It's now like week five, like the month of novelty for people that have you know, their basic needs met is starting to wear off. I feel mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. It's really anyway. interesting. I, yeah. I, um, I would like to um, just slightly push back on that privilege argument, just to put it in context. Yeah. Because I think it's important because I think in itself, it's an odd coping mechanism because there's a difference between recognizing privilege and um, wallowing in privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So you almost when like, and I, I see it quite often. It's 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 a it's a thing that happens on social media a lot, which is someone says, "Recognize your privilege." There are people who are victims of domestic abuse right now who are having terrible experiences. That so that is terrible, but it doesn't take away from what you're going through, and it doesn't take away anyone's individual experience. And it's important not to fixate on those things, and instead try and. Um, the find peace where you are with what you have. So that per so like the, the example I like to use here is the person who's locked away with someone they dislike intensely is probably looking at the person who's locked away by themselves, going, "Oh, aren't they so privileged?" Yeah. And the yeah, person totally. who's locked away by themselves is looking at the per- yeah. people with social interaction every day, going, yeah. "Oh my God, they're so yeah. lucky." Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, right. It's, it is all relative. I, I use that in a broad general sense. And I guess I'm say, I'm kind of saying what you're getting at in more detail, which is it, it is all relative. It's absolutely all relative. Um, I guess what I was saying is that there may there may be degrees to which the novelty wears off quicker based on mm, how privileged oh, you sure. are. 
right? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but that doesn't invalidate how any, anybody's experience, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm I just, uh, I love a good, I love a good semantic argument. I'm just going to see, there's one last thing I want to do before we finish off, um, which is I want to, um, and I'm doing this with absolutely everyone, so I'm really interested in finding out what people find important, which is, do you want to recommend some literature or some resources on yeah. mental health and youth work from your perspective? What are the first couple of books people should be reading if they're interested yeah. in these areas? So... Um, what I'm also going to do is fire you a quick message at the end for like some show notes because um, a lot of it is online stuff and like I can't read out the way. Yeah, I've had um, so I've had that... other people posting on yeah. the live video some of the resources. Yeah, yeah, I might be able to do a bit of that. Um, so one thing I would definitely say first is personally, I'm a terrible reader. Um, I absorb a lot of audio content and and I kind of um, I like Podcasts to understand. Are great too. Yeah, yeah, and I like to understand the principles and punchlines of things, and then I get a wee bit fed up in the detail and I move on, right? That's just the way <laughs> the way I learn, right? So what I would say is there's a few really useful things in terms of youth work, um, which are if you Google Youth Wiki, like Youth Wikipedia, that's a website that has all of the policy documents for at least every European country on it. Um, cool. laid out with sort of little explainers as well so as a parkour practitioner and a coach I can't give you the answer of what's going on in your country specifically but it is there and it's not complicated be confident and go and look um, let me see because I, I wrote a few things down so that's the, really good the youth, youth work in general is pretty good for easy to understand language isn't it yeah and and the principles are simple right i mean i think that's that's what's good about it the, and any of these any national youth work websites that you find for your country will also be full of like um reporting and uh more detailed stuff and you know like i think the national youth work outcomes for the uk is like 100 pages long but there's also one that's just eight pages right or one that's a page so it's about what level you need to engage that with i would also and and this is quite uh Maybe this is controversial. The Wikipedia on youth work is actually really good in terms of giving you. I I, I learned it's a not, lot. It's not controversial. No, no, but let, let me. Let, the, the, the context of youth work and understanding how it emerged from things like uh, responses to world wars, um, the government's been able to assess the needs of young people changing out of the industrial age. That's quite useful to understand that context. And that's all quite good in the wiki. It's dead simple again. Um, let me see. I think there's maybe one. For those following us from other countries, dead means very. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did I say dead? Dead does mean you've, very. You've said it like five times. It's been brilliant. Sorry. So what I would also recommend just to get a feel of it is that um, Youth, Youth Link Scotland, which is one of our national youth agencies, have got a really cool outcomes model. Um, which I'm really going to quickly share with you, but not explain it, but just so you can see what I mean, because it's very hard to describe. Um, they have, where's my share screen gone? Oh, there we go. Sorry. They have this here, right? So I'm not going to talk about this, but basically that's every piece of legislation and youth work principles that are used in the UK and some of them are European wide all put in a little model for you to understand. So a lot of countries have things like this. You'll notice that around the outside, it's all governed by the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Read that. If you work with young people and you don't understand a wee bit about that document, you're missing a trick because there's only two countries in the world that uh, haven't adopted the UNCRC. Unfortunately, one of them is the US. 
I thought that might be the case. The other one's like South Sudan or some country that's just too new, that just doesn't have the legislation yet. So getting a sense of some of that stuff and and recognising these sorts of models, but in your own country is dead useful. And it is really just a bit of Google your government websites. The stuff's pretty legit. It's all there. Just use trusted sources. The Scottish Scottish model for these things, what's really interesting, um, and this is potentially geeky and small, is the Scottish mechanics and models and their theory is always fantastic. Yeah. Their application is not particularly good across the board when it comes yeah. to youth work and uh, young people's outcomes, but the I, theory is really strong there. Yeah, and what, what I would say is that the, the legitimacy of those models is is really growing among the youth work sector and, and wider among the sort of children, young people sector now. Even like I was a school youth worker five years ago. Um, in Shetland, I was the first person to ever do that job. There's school youth workers in almost every school in Scotland now, or at least there's a connection to that. And the, the sort of, you're right that the practice has taken a wee while to catch up. Part of that is also that the practice has always been really good, but youth workers are crap at evaluating stuff because they just don't work, <laughs> right? And you you tend to be the victim of like very short funding models where all you need to do is prove your immediate outcomes because you've you've raised money to keep your youth club open and then you just move on. So the sort of academic study of the long-term evaluation and, and our long-term impact, it's only just catching up, but it is there. Um, the Scandinavian countries, of course, are miles ahead of the game. Anything that's a wee bit socialist or helps people, then look, look to Danish, places like, Finnish, look to places like Finland. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the last bit for me in terms of people to look at is a lot of the, a lot of the thinking that I borrow, I guess, comes from uh, Seth Godin, who's a marketer. Um, but he's just got some great principles on how to think about communication and conversation that are useful for coaching. Um, I've read Permission Marketing. Permission Marketing's great. One of his other works. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to absorb more of the talks, and I'd say within the talks, there's about five punchlines, right? There's, you know, there's five or six different things going on there uh, that have really helped in terms of how I work with young people and communicate. Um, really like the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, one of the only books I've actually read from cover to cover. So, you've read, no, because you gave it to me. Um, oh, no. Uh, there's maybe three uh, or four. Thinking, what else? You've read Thinking oh, Fast yeah. and Slow cover to cover. That was the other one on my, on my group. So I think, yeah, that, and there's another guy that I'm interested at the moment who I've li- listened to a few podcasts, but I've not read this book yet, is Ray Dalio. Uh, he's got a book called Principles. He's like a, a Wall Street guy, sort of, but he, he the book and the podcasts are about how he's basically worked off, refined and worked off a set of six or seven principles and everything that he's ever done um and again it just comes back to that thing is it's sort of really what was his name again ray dalio i'll give you a wee list d-a-l-i-o and the book's called principles i haven't read it yet but i kind of know the gist of it um it just comes back to that idea for me of whether it's youth work or parkour or whatever like pick some principles be a little bit flexible with them but keep going back to them when you get stuck yeah cool um thinking about everything you've said today it's really made me think of a book that i've been uh, I'm not quite finished with it, but I've been reading recently and really enjoying, which you might like, which is called You Are Not So Smart. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. Seen it in an airport. Uh, yeah. It's airport it's, book. Uh, no, it's a, really, it's a really good little book. It's full of like weird, stupid psychology, but d- presented really well. I think you'll really quite like it. Uh-huh. Um, and he's got a podcast, so you can listen instead of That'll read. sort me out. All right. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for watching me and Chris talk for 90 minutes. Um, and I knew it would be long. We warned you. Uh, I think we spoke relatively English. I think we did quite well. Um, 
Uh, I'll be interviewing uh, Sasha from Squishy Sticks tomorrow about community. And I'm really looking forward to that one. And I've got some more lined up for next week. I'm going to be interviewing Brandy Laird. I'm going to be interviewing Alan Tran. And I'm trying to pull, you'll enjoy this one. I'm trying to pull Nina Ballantyne and um, uh, Caitlin Pontrella together to talk about political theory. Um, and I have no idea how that one will go. Like That one's just going to be, if I can make it work, it's going to be fantastic. Right. Get, get um, yourself a whiskey for that one and just set off the fireworks and just sit back. They'll, <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be phenomenal discussing stuff like that, I think. All right. Thank you so much for watching, guys. Uh, and I'll see you all soon. Thank you, Chris.